For God's sake, let us sit upon the ground and tell sad stories of the deaths of kings, how some have been deposed, some slain in war. I me, I see the ruin of my house. The tiger now hath seized the gentle hind. Insulting tyranny begins to jut upon the innocent and aweless throne. What is a man? Sure he made us with such large discourse, looking before and after, gave us not that capability and godlike reason to fust in us unused. O oh, my dear father, restoration hang thy medicine on my lips, and let this kiss repair those violent harms that my two sisters have in thy reverence made. I am a king that find thee, and I know, tis not the balm, the scepter and the ball, the sword, the mace, the crown imperial, the throne he sits on, nor the pomp that beats on the high shore of the world. This is the mighty history of the British Empire, a people living on a tiny island in the North Atlantic Ocean, built an empire that circled the earth and brought freedom and education to languishing millions. This empire was blessed by Almighty God and one of his best educated teachers, William Shakespeare. Shakespeare has educated some of the greatest leaders of all time, such as Abraham Lincoln and Winston Churchill. We shall never surrender. Our troubled world needs a fresh crew of nation-building leaders. Are you ready to step up to the challenge? Welcome to the exciting classroom of Shakespeare's royal education with host Dennis Leap. Well, greetings, everyone. Welcome back to Shakespeare's Royal Education. Well, we need to, to get on to Michaela from Pennsylvania. I don't have any comments today. So, Michaela, if you're out there and listening, maybe you could uh, send in a communication and tell us how, how uh, much you love this program. So, if Michaela's not available, I'm sure there's hundreds of you out there. So, so write in a comment. Now, on our last program... I did discuss from Act 3, Scene 6, and essentially what that's all about was the mock trial that was staged by the now mad King Lear against his evil daughters, Goneril and Regan. And uh, uh, remember now that this mock trial takes place in the hovel near Closter's estate. Now, it, it's really, it, to me, it's a comedic scene but the other, the other part of it is really sad because, um, you know, Lear, uh, is there. He organizes that Kent, the fool, and poor Tom, and of course you should remember that's Gloucester's legitimate son. They're his legal team in the broken down courtroom. <laughs> and so, so he even makes poor Tom or Edgar, he makes him the justice. And uh, the other two are, are supportive lawyers. So it is, it is really a humorous scene, but it's also, it's, it's really quite sad. And uh, I think only Shakespeare has the, the ability to make this work, you know, to write a scene like this and make it work. Now, uh, this is also what goes on, I guess, just give you a little more background. Instead of giving you a big review that I did last time, I thought I'd give you a you know, smaller introduction. But having learned that Lear's daughters are plotting you know, to assassinate Lear, remember Gloucester left his estate to find Lear in the storm and to warn him. Now he does find Lear, 
and a, a, and a company in the hovel. And when seeing poor Tom, he has a flash thought of his son Edgar. And so, so here Shakespeare is getting us ready for the re-meeting of uh, Gloucester and Edgar. And, uh, but, but it is interesting. He sees poor Tom, and I think he recognizes, hey, this is a relative. And so he gets a flash in his mind, but he doesn't, he's so concerned, uh, Gloucester is so concerned about Lear that I, I, he doesn't give it much thought. So essentially, I think you remember also what happens then. Uh, Gloucester returns to his home to get provisions for Lear, but then uh, uh, his uh, illegitimate son Edmund has told um, Cornwall and the, the, uh, the daughters that uh, there's rumors that there's going to be a war between them and that there's also there is an army from France uh, landing in Dover. And so uh, essentially when Gloucester returns to his home to get provisions for Lear, they blind him. And it's really a gruesome scene. Cornwall, Goneril, and Reagan, uh, they uh, pluck out his eyes and they thrust him into the storm just like they put Lear in the storm. Now, today what I want to do is, is I really want to kind of go back and finish that court scene uh, somewhat because it is, I think it's very interesting scene. And remember these two programs I'm working with now are related to Edgar and Cordelia and the work they do to save their father. So, so uh, this scene isn't just, uh, let's say, uh, an addition I want to put in there. It's really part of the whole process of what's going on. And here Edgar's in there and, uh, you know, he's the justice. And, and there's some things that I just want to, to cover with you and give you the details. So if, if we go to line 40, this is in Act 3, Scene 3, I mean Scene 6, it's, it's a page 83. And uh, this is line 40. Um, it, it, it really is, is kind of interesting what goes on. And, and here... Essentially, um, if you look at it, is, is Lear has already said to him that, well, you're going to be the justice. And, and here, what's really funny about this scene, again, if you can ever see the movie, and there's really a good one from uh, Stratford from the, the Royal Shakespeare Company. It's probably the best film I've seen on Lear. Um, <laughs> remember, he's just about naked. I mean, he's got like a big diaper on, <laughs> but but he's the justice. And so so I don't know if Shakespeare was making fun of the old justice systems or not. But uh, if you look at some of the justice today, uh, maybe we could see most of the, the corrupt judges as in big divers. <laughs> yeah, so so we, can, uh, we, we can look at it this way. But here, uh, King Lear appoints him as the justice. And so here's what Edgar has to say. And again, this is... Uh, we're still dealing with Edgar a little bit, but we are going to get into Cordelia today as well. And, and uh, Shakespeare has a, a, an amazing way of putting these characters in different scenes and in different ways. But notice what Edgar says, that they're getting ready to start the trial, and they're going to, Goneril's on trial right now. And so, so Edgar's the judge. He says, let us deal justly. Sleepest or wakest thou, jolly shepherd, the sheep be in the corn, and for one blast of the minican mouth, thy sheep shall take no harm. And then he goes on to say, purr, the cat is gray. Now, <laughs> Edgar is not really acting like a justice. He's still playing poor Tom. 
<laughs> and so, so if you think about what's happening there in this scene, is is you know Lear's there, um, you know Kent is there, uh, you know they, they if if he reveals himself, he doesn't want to reveal himself because he knows he's got everybody in England after him. He can't even get out of England because they want to they want to get him and throw him in prison. So he's staying he's playing poor Tom a little bit. Then Lear, remember now, Lear is, Lear is totally insane by this point. He's absolutely mad. And, uh, you know, Goneril, by the way, when I ever say Goneril, she is not even there. And what he's done is some of these poor women that are beggars, he's, he's, uh, picked three to be, or picked two of them, I should say, to be his daughter. Uh, he, he, or the evil daughters. He doesn't pick anyone to be Cordelia. And, uh, she comes in because she's not under, under uh, duress or she's not uh, an evil daughter and he pretty much knows that by that anyway Lear goes on to say well arraign her first and this is and he's looking at these three ladies he's captured that are that are beggars and they're freaked out that the <laughs> the king is even in the hobble with them and uh, uh, he says arraign uh, her first is Gosrel I hear take my oath before this honorable assembly Kick the poor king, her father. So that's what he's saying. I, she's here. And the reason why she's here is because she kicked me. And essentially what he's saying, I think, is she kicked me out. She kicked me out of my castle. Anyway. But the fool then comes in and he says, Come hither, mistress. Is your name Goneril? And then Lear says, She cannot deny it. And so, so, so the thing is, is the fool is really not a fool. He's playing along. And, and, uh, but, but you can just see that, that Lear is mad and the fool knows he's mad, but even the fool is almost half mad. <laughs> so, so it, it really is, like I said, this is really a, com- a comedic scene, but in some ways it's really, it's really sad and very serious. Uh, and he, Lear says, she cannot deny it. And then the fool says, cry your, cry you mercy. I look, uh, I took you for a joint stool. And now, Again, fool just says the stupid things. I don't know what they're even what uh, they're even trying to say there. But Lear goes on and said, and here's another whose warped looks proclaim what store our heart is made on. Stop her there. Arms, arms, sword, fire, corruption in the place, false justicer. Why hast thou let her escape? And so essentially, what's happening? These poor ladies that are that are uh, in the hovel with them and they're beggars. They're scrambling to get out of this courtroom scene because they don't—they don't know what's really going on, and uh, you know, being beggars and probably being very hungry and in this big storm, <laughs> they probably think, "Hey, we we want to get out of here. What's really going on here?" And then uh, then Edgar says, and and now now they're they they're not calling him poor Tom. I mean, Shakespeare's not calling him. He's, this is Edgar, and essentially, I think what. Um, what Shakespeare is doing here with this is is he is ready now for Edgar to reveal himself to Gloucester. That's what's really going on. And so he's not being called poor Tom now. He's being called called Edgar. And Edgar says, bless your five wits. And so and he's referring that to Lear. He's, he's, he doesn't have five wits. He doesn't have any wits. You know, he's, he's, uh, he's really in, in big, big trouble um, let's say emotionally and mentally, and uh, the Kent goes on to say, "Oh, 
Oh, pity, sir, where is, there, is the patience now that you so oft have boasted to retain? And so, so uh, uh, you know, Kent is, is really getting concerned as well about King Lear. He's, he's, uh, he's losing his mind. That's really what's going on. And then notice then that Edgar says, and this is the side, and he's saying it basically to the audience. He says, my tears begin to make his part so much they mar my counterfeiting. So, so essentially, Edgar is so sad for what's happening to King Lear that he's really crying. I mean, he's, he's really, you know, coming to a lot of tears. And, uh, you know, I think it's, it's, uh, it's, it's really interesting. And when he says they mar my counterfeiting, he says, well, they're going to reveal me. It's like a mask. If he's cries too much, it's going to take all the the junk he put in his hair and over his face and make it look muddy and dirty and all that. So, so he's not ready to be revealed yet. And, um, but, but remember now, Lear thinks he's the judge. So, so Lear, Lear then says to, to Edgar, he says, the little dogs and all, Trey, Blanche, and Sweetheart, see, they bark at me. Now, Edgar, Edgar is, I'm sure he's going, what in the world is going on here? Trey, Blanche, and Sweetheart, and Lear is remembering three little dogs he had. <laughs> They're barking at him. And Edgar, he goes and says, Tom will throw his head at them. Avant you curs. And so, so now, uh, you know, Edgar's going to play along. And he says, by thy mouth, black or white, tooth that poisons if it bite. Mastiff, greyhound, mongrel, grim, hound or spaniel, brat, brock or limb. O bobtail, tyke or trundle tail. Tom will make him weep and well for the throwing, thus my head, dogs leaped the hatch, and all are fled. <laughs> so, so there, I guess Shakespeare realizes he needs to write a few poems. So there he writes some poetry. And then it goes, do, dee, 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 sessa, come march to wakes and fairs and market towns, poor Tom, thy horn is dry. And so, so essentially, he's, he's worn out. <laughs> he's worn out. You know, with uh, playing poor Tom, he's worn out with the storm. He's worn out seeing his king absolutely nuts, and uh, you know, so so they're all being affected essentially by Lear. Then Lear says, "Then let them atomize Reagan. She see what breeds about her heart. Is there any cause in nature that makes these hard hearts?" And he looks to Edgar. He says, "You, sir, I entertain for one of my hundred." Only I do not like the fashion of your garments. You will say they are Persian, but let them be changed. So, so essentially, if you, if you remember back to previous programs, the whole thing going on with Lear and his daughters was the number of knights. And they were saying, you can't have a hundred. In fact, I think uh, it was Goneril that said, why, why need you even one? And so, so essentially, he thinks so much of Edgar, the judge, that he says, I want you to be one of my hundred knights. And so, so, and I think this is also a little bit of a way that, that Shakespeare is beginning to bring um, uh, Edgar to the foreground. And you're going to see this more uh, even by the end of the play. And some of you probably already know the ending, but Edgar is the one in the play that comes out, you know, uh, with, let's say, the most positive future ahead of him. Kent goes on to say then, Now, good my lord, lie here and rest a while. 
And Lear says, make no noise, make no noise, draw the curtains, so, so, we'll go to supper in the morning. And so, so they just want Lear to lay down and go to sleep. And notice then the fool has to get a, a smart aleck. He has to be a smart aleck. He says, the fool says, and I'll go to bed at noon. <laughs> so, so he's got to stay up all night. And it won't be long till you'll see that the, the fool just disappears and he never appears anymore at the end of the, towards the end of the play. So he's getting ready to, to, uh, go off stage for, you know, for the rest of the play. Then Gloucester comes back and he says, come hither, friend. Where is the king, my master? And Kent says, here, sir, but trouble him not. His wits are gone. And so uh, Gloucester says, good friend, I prithee, take him in thy arms. I have overheard a plot of death upon him. Now, I'm not going to read all of this because we discussed this last time. And if you remember, uh, they kicked Lear out. Gloucester came looking for him. And, uh, you know, he, uh, uh, he, this is where he's looking for him. He's finally found him. But then also he came to warn him that there's a plot of death on him. His daughters want him executed. And so, so, uh, that's why Gloucester shows up during the court case. Um, he, he goes on. I don't think I need to read all of this. He says, there is a letter, a, a litter ready, lay him in it and drive, uh, toward Dover. So, so Gloucester's saying, look, we really need to take him towards Dover or to Dover. And the thing is, is remember, Gloucester has a letter from Cordelia telling her they're bringing an army to England to, you know, to help stop the civil war between, you know, the, the, the two dukes. And also she wants to rescue her father. And so, so Gloucester knows about it. And of course, then, uh, he goes back, uh, home to get some provisions and they put his eyes out. So, so, uh, uh, that's actually in the very next scene, which we've already read to you, Act 3, Scene 7. So Kent goes on to say, Oppressed nature sleeps, this this rest might yet have bombed thy broken sinews, which, if convenience will not allow, stand in hard cure. And to the full, Kent says, Come, help to bear thy master. You must not stay behind. And so, so essentially, what Gloucester does, he makes sure that he gets his king you know, in a situation where he's actually sleeping. And then I think I also read this part uh, about Edgar uh, last time. And he talks about when we are better see bearing our woes, we scarcely think our miseries are foes. And uh, essentially what Edgar is doing, he's finally coming to maybe to his senses and he's, he's uh, probably getting himself ready to come out of being poor Tom. And, and he's also saying he thought his woes were really bad. And now he sees that even King Lear is in a worse, worse situation. So in some ways, Edgar is growing up and, uh, he's, he's, uh, you know, facing what, what he needs to face. So it is, it is, uh, I think, uh, when, when, uh, we, we see, um, you know, Edgar, he certainly is more tender than his brother Edmund, and uh, uh, he actually, if you if you look at go back to uh, if we go back too far, maybe to line fifty nine, um, you go all the way back. Um, uh, this is page eighty three. He says, "My tears begin to take his part so much they mar my counterfeiting." Now we read that, so so uh, that's kind of a tender scene. But he is, it's not, he's not crying for himself now. He's crying for, 
for Lear, which which shows he's he's really he's really growing up. All right, so so we we saw the scene right there, the line seventy five, where and during Regan's trial, that Lear wants Edgar to be a part of his hundred knights, and so so in some ways, I think that shows that even King Lear in his madness, he can see good qualities in other people. And he sees a good quality in Edgar, even though he's wearing a diaper and got all kinds of gnats and bugs and everything in his hair. So uh, it's just really, in, in some ways, if you, if you think about what's really happening in the world today, and of course, uh, if you don't know, I mean, uh, uh, Miss Carrie Lake was in here yesterday with uh, Mr. Stephen Flurry. And uh, they were talking about what you know what's really going on in this world, and uh, you know she she is really fighting for the American Republic, and people hate her. And uh, you know one of the things that happened yesterday when when she was coming on campus, they lined up all the students from kindergarten all the way up to seniors in high school, and they had a big sign with the little kindergartners. They were hanging up a sign, welcome. And, you know, they had flags, American flags. They were waving to her. And uh, she came over to take a few pictures. And my little my little granddaughter said, when she stopped by me, granddad, do you know that she was crying? Because here she came to an area where she was welcomed, where, you know, people were excited to see her. And so, so uh, you know, it's tough out there when you when you want to stand up and let's just pe- call it what it is. When you, you want to stand up to the communists, they're going to try and destroy your life. But if uh, you know, if people that are really sensible and if they really have the right brains, you know, we should be thanking people like Carrie Lake for for what they're doing. And so, so in some ways, that this play, uh, King Lear, is still. Even though it was written, what, you know, a long time ago uh, by Shakespeare, these kind of problems that we're having today, even even today, they were happening even in England. And he saw it, and he saw what was coming. And, uh, you know, it's just part of human nature. And, uh, you know, uh, I think we're also now back into... Uh, uh, Moby Dick and Melville in my sophomore English class, which I love that book. And, uh, you know, he, he talks about, uh, essentially about human nature in the book, in the very first part of the book. And, and, uh, uh he, he talks about that, that all this problem in this world got started with the, with the, the two orchard thieves. <laughs> and, and he's talking about Adam and Eve eating from the tree of, knowledge and not eating from the tree of life and uh you know melville really did did read his bible but it's really true i mean god wanted to teach adam and eve god wanted them to have the best god wanted them to know what the plan was and they decided to go their own way but unfortunately they took the whole world with them and so so in in some ways you know that's what we're dealing with with it's like in many ways, it's like we're King Lear. We're dealing with, you know, a, a very evil family and they want to kick all the good guys out, like Donald Trump, and they want to put their own people in. And that's essentially what this play, this play is about. And so, uh, 
uh, again, you can see that that even this this thing with Edgar and with Lear, as Lear could see some really good qualities. All right. Now, what I want to do is let's go to Act Four, and we'll go to Scene One, and uh, we're we're going to skip around a little bit. Uh, again, I just wanted to. Uh, uh, I want to talk a little bit about Edgar, but then we really do want to get into Cordelia today as well. But but uh, if you go to Act Four and, and Scene One, we'll just we'll just start there. Um, well, actually, I think I actually read this before. So let's go to Scene Four, Act One, and let's go to Line Fifty Four, because I, I did read this, and, and this is uh, Edgar outside Gloucester's castle. And he's talking about yet better thus and known to be contemned than still contemned and flattered, flattered to be worse. The lowliest and most dejected thing of fortune stands in hope or esperance lives not in fear. So I remember reading this last time. So, so we'll, we'll skip that. And, and again, everybody out there listening, it wouldn't hurt you to go back and listen to the last program. And uh, again, it will help you tie everything together here. So now what I want to do is I want to go to, to line 54, and that's on page 94. And so, so essentially what, what has happened, and we discussed some of this before, in this scene, Act 4, Scene 1, what we have is Gloucester is now blinded. And, and he's out in the storm, and, and thankfully his servant, and all he's listed as, uh, in, According to Shakespeare, he's just called the old man. Uh, essentially, what's going on here is the old man has has uh, saw what's happened. He knows he's blind. He knows he's out in the storm, and the old man is out there trying to help him. And uh, essentially, what what really happens here is um, uh, Edgar comes on the scene. You know, he's he's out of the hovel. Remember now the hovel. Where the court case took place is it's really near Gloucester's castle, so it's it, they're not that separated. And remember, at the very beginning of the program, I said that uh, when Gloucester entered the hovel and he saw poor Tom, he had a flash thought about his son Edgar. And essentially, you know, if if you look at it, if you look at, I mean, I think you could put a lot of uh, pain on your face or whatever, and and still, I still think. My family would notice it's me. Like, Dad, what's wrong with you? You know, <laughs> what are you doing that for? So, so, so. Anyway, um, uh, we're into this scene now, and again, we're on. We're going to be on page ninety-four. So, so I'm going to skip ahead just a little bit, and and essentially, what I'm what we're going to do is we're going to start at line fifty-four, and so so the old man uh, is is at the very top of the page there. And maybe I'll just start at line 51. It says, old man says, I'll bring him the best peril that I have. Come on, what will? And so, so if you remember, uh, Gloucester knows that, that, uh, uh, poor Tom is there and he knows he's almost naked and he tells the old man, look, they've already had a discussion is, is I've got to get to Dover. I need someone to lead me to Dover. And, and uh, the old man says, well, this guy's a little crazy. And he said, well, uh, sometimes crazy people can do a lot of good things. <laughs> and so, so, but then Gloucester says, get him, get him some clothes. And so uh, uh, 
then Gloucester, he, he just says, hey, Sarah, naked fellow. And then poor Tom says, poor Tom's a cold. And it, now he's playing poor Tom again. And inside he says, I cannot daub it further. And so in other words, Edgar's saying, I got to quit playing. I, I got to quit playing this game. And besides, his father's blind. He can't see him anyway. So Gloucester says, come hither, fellow. And Edgar says, and yes, I must. Bless your, bless your sweet eyes, they bleed. And Gloucester says, know thou the way to Dover. And Edgar says, both style and gait, horseway and footpath. Poor Tom hath been scared out of his good wits. Bless thee, good man's son, from the foul fiend. Five fiends have been in poor Tom at once, of lust as obdicut, and then hobby didence, prince of the dumbness mahu of stealing, modo of murder, flipperty gibbet of mopping and mowing, who since possesses chambermaids and waiting women, so bless thee, master. So so here Edgar is, is actually lying to his dad and saying, look, I have five demons in me. And uh, uh, Gloucester says, uh, he said, look, can you get me to Dover? And then uh, Gloucester says, here, take this purse. Thou whom the heaven plagues have humbled to all strokes, that I am wretched makes thee the happier. Heavens do so still, yet the superfluous and lust-dieted man that slaves your ordinance that will not see, because he does not feel, fill your power quickly, so distribution should undo excess, and each man have enough. Do you know Dover? And so, so essentially what's happening to Gloucester, if you remember at the very beginning of the play, he was big on the gods, big on what the gods do. He was really for the gods. And, and uh, if you remember his big conversation going on about the stars, and he said, well, there's got to be something wrong in the stars, why all this is happening to Lear, why he's rejected the daughters. You know, he was just all frustrated by that. And um, so, so, so essentially, uh, Gloucester now is rejecting paganism, <laughs> essentially what's going on. And then Edgar turns to his dad. He says, I master. And Gloucester says, there is a cliff whose high and bending head looks fearfully in the confined deep. Bring me but to the very rim of it, and I'll repair the misery thou dost bear. With something rich about me from that place, I'll, I shall no leading need. And then Edgar says, give me your arm. Poor Tom shall lead you. And so essentially he hasn't figured it out yet, but his dad wants to commit suicide. <laughs> he wants to jump off the cliff of Dover. I've never seen the cliffs of Dover. And if I ever get a chance to go back to England, I want to go and see the cliffs of Dover. I understand they're absolutely beautiful because they're white. And so uh, it's, it's, it's really, really quite interesting. All right, so so we see now that 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 here, Edgar is now actually able to help his father, and and he's going to help him get to Dover, but but what I want you to to understand is that that uh, this really rebuilds their relationship. And I'm, again, I'm going to skip around just a little bit, because I want to take you to the next step. Uh, what's going on and so so you know uh, when you're dealing with plays that you know Shakespeare inter introduces some other acts with other things going on so so let's go to act four scene six now and essentially 
what you're going to we're going to be back with with um, Gloucester and Edgar, and again this this is uh, I think one of the greatest scenes uh, uh, in the book, and um, it's going to be at this time as well. And uh, I, I don't want to give away too much yet, but uh, we'll talk about Cordelia. But I do want to do a special program program when Gloucester and and Lear meet, <laughs> and they're actually both sane then and uh it's really a great scene it it's uh, too bad i can't show it to you uh, on a film but if you ever get this if you ever can see a film uh it, it's like they're they're out in the in the woods or the fields together and they're finally coming to the conclusion uh as how stupid they were <laughs> and how they made a mistake and especially over cordelia and edgar <laughs> you know that's what they that's what they come to understand so okay, so so this is page one hundred five, by the way, uh, if you're following right in your book. And here, here Gloucester and Edgar uh, are coming, and they're they are at Dover. And Gloucester says, "When shall I come to the top of that same hill?" And Edgar says, "You do climb it up now. Look how we labor." And they're on flat ground. <laughs> He's not taking him up any hill. And this is really, when you see a movie, it's really shown a lot better. Because, uh, you know, uh, the, 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 the actor that plays Edgar is acting like, oh, we got to walk and it's going to be really hard. And, uh, uh, you know, but they're just, it's totally flat. And uh, Edgar says, you do climb it up now. Look how we labor. Gloucester says, methinks the ground is even. <laughs> You can't see, but obviously, you know, if you have a good sense about your body, you can tell when you're on a hill, when you're on level ground. You don't need eyes to see that. Edgar says, "Oh, it's horrible steep," and and he said, "Hark, do you hear the sea?" And Gloucester says, "No, truly." He says, "Why then? Your other senses grow imperfect, but your eyes anguish." And, and so, he, you know, that's, that's usually what really happens to people that go blind is their hearing would get better. Or if their hearing goes bad, your, your eyes get better. I guess I'm going deaf because I went to the eye doctor and uh, they said that, that my, um, I, I could read like really small print and they asked, what, what did you do? You know, so I don't need glasses for reading anymore. I need glasses for distance. So, so they still gave me, uh, you know, bifocal lenses, and I can't read books anymore with my glasses on. <laughs> I have to read them without the glasses. And then Gloucester goes on to say, "So may may it be indeed. Methinks thy voice is altered, and you speakest in better phrase and matter than thou didst." And so, so Gloucester's senses are tuning in. And now he doesn't sound like poor Tom. He sounds like, well, maybe he's an educated prince. And so, so uh, uh, Edgar says, you're much deceived. And nothing am I changed but in my garments. <laughs> and so, so there, in some ways you have to laugh about that. Why does Edgar even care what he thinks? He can't see anything. You know, so the Gloucester says, "Methinks you're better spoken," and then Edgar says, "Come on, sir, here's the place. Stand still. How fearful and dizzy 'tis to cast one's eye so low. The crows and cloths that wing the midway air show scarce so gross at as beetles. 
Halfway down hangs one that gathers samphire, dreadful trade. Methinks he seems no bigger than his head. The fishermen that walk on the beach appear like mice, and yawned tall and anchoring bark. And so that's a ship. She said, uh, he's saying that appear like mice and yon tall anchoring bark diminished to her dock or dinghy. And so, so, uh, uh, it's, oh, it's diminished to her cock, her cock. And that's, that just means a dinghy, a buoy. Or I, I, oh, I have to say that right, don't I? It's buoy. I'm right either way. Whoever writes that in, just go ahead and write. I don't care. But at least I get a comment. All right. Buoy. Or boy, I still like boy, because we used to have soap you would call life boy. All right. So it's almost too small for sight. So he's talking about this big ship out there. It's, it's, it's just, it's just small. It says the murmuring surge that on the unnumbed idle pebbles chafes cannot be heard so high. I look no more, lest my brain turn and the deficient sight topple down headlong. And Locke Gloucester says, see me where you stand. And give me your hand. You are now within a foot of the extreme verge, says Edgar. For all beneath the moon would I not leap upright. And Gloucester says, let me let go my hand. Here, friends, another purse. In it a jewel, well worth a poor man's taking. Fairies and gods, prosper it with thee. Go thou further off. Bid me farewell and let me hear thee going. And so, so essentially, if you remember... You know, Edmund wants to take the whole estate. And, and here Gloucester's ready to commit suicide and he gives him, uh, you know, a purse full of jewels. And he said it's worth, you know, it's worth a lot of money. And, uh, Edgar says, now fare you well, good sir. And Gloucester says, with all my heart. And then Edgar stands aside. He said, why do I trifle thus with his despair? It is done to cure it. Uh, Gloucester says, oh, you mighty gods. He kneels, this world I do renounce, and in your size, shake patiently my great affliction off. If I could bear it longer and not fall, to quarrel with your great opalous wills, my snuff and loathe part of nature should burn itself out. If Edgar live, oh, bless him. Now, fellow, fare thee well. And he falls forward and swoons. And essentially, he falls flat on his face. <laughs> He didn't fall off the cliff. And, uh, uh, you know, but he's, he's so emotionally, uh, let's say upset about everything. And, and I would think I would be upset if someone plucked my eyes out. Uh, you know, I, I think I'd be upset. And Edgar says, gone, sir, farewell. And yet I know not how, uh, conceit may rob the treasury of life when life itself yields to the theft. Had he been where he thought, by this had thought been passed, alive or dead. Ho, you, sir, friend, hear you, sir, speak. Thus might he pass indeed, yet he revives. What are you, sir? Gloucester says, away, let me die. And now Edgar, Edgar pulls another wink on him. Hadst thou been aught but gossamer, and I think that's something light, uh, like, like feathers, Feathers air, so many fathoms down precipitating. Thou shivered like an egg, but thou dost breathe. And so, so essentially what Edgar's pretending, he's another person down below. And he's caught, he see the body falling. And he said, oh, you were like, you felt like a feather. <laughs> so, so, uh, hast heavy substance, bleeds not, speak, 
speaks, art sound, ten masts at each make not the altitude, which thou hast perpendicularly fell. Thy life's a miracle. Speak yet again? Gloucester then says, But I've fallen or no? He said, From the dread summit of this chalky bourne, look up a height. The shrill gorge lark so far cannot be seen or heard. Do but look up. So, so in some ways that's pretty cheap. He they can't see anything. You know, he's blind. His dad's blind. But he's really pulling the wool over his eyes. <laughs> I've been wanting to say that for, for a while. And Gloucester says, Alack, I have no eyes. Is wretchedness deprived that benefit to end itself by death? "'Twas yet some comfort when misery could beguile the tyrant's rage "'and frustrate his proud will. "'Edgar says, give me your arm, up. "'So, how is it? Feel your legs, you stand. "'Gloucester says, too well, too well. "'This is above all strangeness. "'Upon the crown of the cliff, what thing was that which parted from you?' "'And, and so, Edgar's really playing that he's a different character.' Because he said, well, there was a strange being up there with you. Where's that one? What happened to him? Uh, Gloucester says, he was a poor, unfortunate beggar. And Edgar says, as I stood here below, methought his eyes were two full moons. <laughs> he had a thousand noses, horns whelked, and waved like the engridged sea. It was some fiend. Therefore, thou happy father, think that thou clearest gods who make them honors of men's impossibilities have preserved thee. And so, so can you imagine, he's, he's, it's like Halloween. He's trying to make him, uh, his face look horrible. And, uh, uh, you know, I think Gloucester is beginning to, to uh, think it through. He says, I do remember now. Henceforth, I'll bear affliction till it do cry out itself. Enough, enough, and die. The thing you speak of, I took it for a man. Often twould say... The fiend, the fiend, he led me to that place. And Edgar says, bear free and patient thoughts. And so so essentially what happens now is, guess who shows up? And this is what I want to spend a whole program on. But Lear enters. <laughs> and uh, now Lear enters, and he's mad, and he's got weeds all through his hair, almost exactly what what Edgar did to himself. But who comes here? And he says, the safer sense we will never accommodate his master thus. And Lear says, no, they cannot touch me for coining. I am the king himself. And Edgar says, oh, thou side-piercing sight. And then Lear goes on to say, nature's above art in that respect. There's your press money. That fellow handles his bow like a crowkeeper. Draw me a clothier's yard. Look, look, a mouse. Peace, peace. This piece of toasted cheese will do it. There's my gauntlet. I'll prove it on a giant. Bring up the brown bills. Oh, well-flown bird. I the clout. I the clout. Hugh, give the word. And then Edgar says, sweet marjoram. <laughs> and so so it, it's almost like, like Lear at this point looks like he's like, uh, a, a seller of herbs. He's got them everywhere in his hair and, you know, all over his body. And, and so, so essentially what, what's happened is Lear escaped on his own and he's out in the wilderness now. But they are at Dover. And so, so, uh, one of the things you have to know is that 
that Cordelia is really pretty close at hand. So Gloucester goes on and says, I know that voice, and, and uh, uh, I, I think what I'm going to do is I'm going to stop there and just, um, uh, just save that. I, I want to save this, and we just spend some time with this, because this is where it's really pretty funny. I mean, the, what, what, uh, what Edgar does is he's t- he kind of goes off stage, and it's just the two of them together. And they talk about all kinds of things. So, so I want to just hold that for, for the next time because we're going to, we're going to actually by the next time finish this play. And so, uh, so, but I, I want to now talk about Cordelia and, and Cordelia in, even during the, the, this part of the play, she is actually in England and she's also hunting for Lear. So let's go to page, page 102. We're going to go back um, previous to this. And uh, what we're going to do is this is going to be Act 4, Scene 4. And uh, uh, if, if, I mean, Shakespeare, again, he cuts it all up and puts it in order he wanted. And I'm kind of like uncutting it and putting it in order that I want. But, but remember, this, this, uh, this series, this is part two of a series of how you know, Edgar and Cordelia really want to, to help their fathers. And, and here we, we kind of finish now on Edgar. He's, he's actually got him to Dover. Uh, he's got him out of wanting to commit suicide. And, uh, uh, um, you know, Edgar also, uh, he wants to support not only Lear, but he also wants to support Cordelia. And that you're going to see that before the end. Uh, well, by the end, you're going to see you know, how much they really support each other. So, so we'll be at Act 4, Scene 4. This is page 102. What enters the scene? There's drum, there's colors, there's cordelias, there's gentlemen, there's a doctor, and there's soldier, soldiers. So essentially what you have is you have Queen Cordelia now coming back to England. And she's got gentlemen with her. She's got a doctor with her. She's also got an army with her. And and obviously the king is there as well. He's just not in this scene. And Cordelia then, she's she's hunting for Lear. And she says, Alack, tis he, why he was met even now, as mad as the vexy, singing aloud, crowned with rank fumiter and furrows weeds, with hard docks, hemlock, nettles, cockflowers, darnel, and all idle weeds that grow in our sustaining corn. A sentry send forth, search every acre in the high ground, and bring him to our eye. And so, so she's hunting for, for Lear. And she's heard, obviously, some information that he's mad. He's, he's vexed. He's got all kinds of things growing all over him. And so she's really hunting for him. She's really upset. What can man's wisdom in the restoring of his bereaved sense he that helps him take all my outward worth. So she, she's, she's actually uh, in the French camp. She's right near Dover. Um, she knows that her father is somewhere near them. And so she has a doctor that she wants the doctor to take care of her dad. And the doctor says, this is means, madam. Our foster nurse of nature is repose, the which he lacks. That to provoke in him are many simple operative whose power will close the eyelids of anguish. And so, so the doctor is kind of reassuring her that 
you know, if he's out here in the in the the air in the country, it might not hurt him. You know, it might really help him. And and uh, Cordelia says, "All blessed secrets are you unpublished virtues of the earth. Spring with my tears, be aidant and remedate in good man's distress. Seek, seek for him. Let his ungoverned rage dissolve the life that wants the means to lead it." And so, so there's a messenger now comes in and says, news, madam, the British powers are marching hitherward. So, so essentially, if you, if you, um, we've skipped a few scenes that we'll get back to the, uh, the war is starting, the civil war is starting in England. Uh, the sisters, uh, Goneril and Regan, to be honest, we'll figure it out or, you know, the next time probably, uh, we'll talk about it. They, they hate each other. They're getting ready to to go to war uh goneril absolutely despises her husband albany and remember now cornwall is dead and the only uh of course then regan is you know is having her little affair with you know who and uh uh with edmund and of course regan thinks she's having an affair with edmund at the same time and so uh it, it turns out to be pretty bad for everybody except um well i I don't i don't want to give it all away yet all right so um uh, cordelia says does know before our preparation stands and expectation of them oh dear father it is your business that i go about therefore great france my mourning and importune tears hath pitied no blown and ambition doth our arms incite but love, dear love, and our aged father's right, soon I may hear and see him. Now, if you look at this scene, and and uh, or if you look at these lines of Cordelia, one of the things that, if, if you look at all the people that have studied this play, is that, that a lot of people want to name Cordelia as like a Christ figure. Now, obviously, she's female, and she really can't be a, a Christ figure. But um, if you if you look at this line, oh dear father, it is thy business that I go about. And if if you really study your Bible, if if you go back and you look at Luke two verse forty nine, you know, um, you know, Christ was with his family at Passover. They went up to Passover together. He's twelve years old. Uh, he doesn't he doesn't come home with the caravan. And they get home, and he's not with the relatives. He's not anywhere. And, you know, uh, Mary and Joseph are so, uh, you know, upset because uh, at, at least Mary knows for sure who Christ really is, and it's her responsibility to take care of him. And I'm sure Joseph also knows this. He's a 12-year-old, and he's not there. And in Luke 2.49, they finally find Christ. He's 12. And they said, Son... Why have you done this to us? <laughs> we can't find you. And he says, Mom and Dad, didn't you know I must be about my father's business? And so so, so this line, Shakespeare puts that in there, knowing the Bible. And so so in some ways, you know, Cordelia was well, totally abused by her sisters. I, I mean, e- even if you really understand the whole history of Christ, even his brothers and sisters didn't like him. You know, he was he was kind of like, you know, a loner in that sense. 
But but that's that's a, an amazing line right there. She says, "Oh dear father, it is it is thy business thy go about." And so so you could ask yourself. I mean, we could ask Shakespeare sometime in the future. Is she praying there, or is she just thinking about scriptures? I mean, that's that's a good question. Uh, if you want to write a term paper on it, you can send it in to me. You know, maybe I'll read it on the radio. You know, so anyway, let's go to to um. Let's see. Th- th- I think that's that's a really good scene. Um, let's go now to page one eighteen, and this is going to be scene seven. 117, 118. And this is also in the French camp. And uh, again, uh, what you have here is you have Cordelia, you have Kent, the doctor, and the gentleman there. So essentially what's happened now is Kent has found Cordelia. And um, uh, we're going to see that that they were actually working together. And remember, in the very early part of the play, uh, Kent sends a message to Cordelia saying that he is still in England. And remember, he uses his ring to prove to her that he's really in England. And so so it's not surprising. We should not be surprised that they're together here. And then Cordelia then opens and says, Oh, thou good Kent, how shall I live and work to match thy goodness? My life will be too short and every measure fail me. And so, so she knows now that the Kent has been really looking after the king. Uh, he was in the hovel. He, he's, uh, he's really worked hard to protect him. And then Kent says, to be acknowledged, madam, is overpaid. All my reports go with the modest truth. No more nor clipped, but so. He says, I'm just telling you the basic truth. You know, I've watched out for him. And, uh, you know, he doesn't even know who I am. I mean, he's still, uh, he's still under, well, the same kind of costuming that uh, that um, uh, you have Gloucester's son, Edgar, is doing. So it is interesting. There's two masked characters in this play. And then Cordelia says, be, be better suited. These weeds are memories of those worser hours. I prithee put them off. And then Ken says, pardon, dear madam, yet to be known shortens my main intent. My boon, I make it that you know me not till time and I think meet. So he's saying, look, I know I'm not dressed like I used to be. You know, he's changed his voice. He's changed his accent, probably changed his hair, hair, hairstyle. And she's just saying, look, he said, please don't make me known. Don't let everybody know I'm Kent yet. You know, that's what, in, in some ways, just a few scenes before, that's the same thing Edgar's saying. I don't want to be known yet, and uh, uh, but the, the, all the important people know who they are, and so uh, Cordelia says, "Then be it so, my good lord." And he goes to the doctor. How does the king, doctor? And so, so essentially, by scene seven, they now have the king. She's got him, and uh, he's being taken care of. And the doctor says, "Madam, he sleeps still." And Cordelia says, Oh, you kind gods, cure this great breach in his abused nature. The untuned and jarring senses, oh, wind up of this child-changed father. And so she's really speaking about her sisters there. And look what they've done to him. And uh, that's a great line, this child-changed father. He says, Doctor, so please your majesty that we may wake the king. He hath slept long. 
And Cordelia says, be governed by your knowledge and proceed in this way of your own will. Is he arrayed? And then essentially what happens, they bring Lear onto the scene. And he's in a chair. He's being taken care of by nurses and servants. And uh, then Lear comes in and, and a gentleman says, I met him. In the heaviness of sleep, we put fresh garments on him. And so, so thankfully, the medical team has gotten rid of his crazy outfit. They got all the herbs out of his hair and the flowers and, and all that. But still, uh, if you could ever see the movie, the scene when, when he and Gloucester get together is just hilarious and, and how they, they talk to each other. Um, the gentleman says, I met him in the heaviest of sleep. We put fresh garments on him. The daughter says, uh, be by, good madam. When we do wake him, I doubt not of his temperance. And so they're, they're warning her, look, Cordelia, we don't really know what he's going to do and what he's going to say when he wakes up. And Cordelia says, very well. Then they play music in the background. And, then, and the daughter says, please draw near, louder the music there. So, oh, my dear father, restoring hang thy medicine on my lips and let this kiss repair those violent harms that my two sisters have in reverence made. And so essentially what you have there is Lear is awake. She gives her father a kiss, and she's not really sure what's going to happen. Then Kent says, kind and dear princess, Cordelia says, had you not been their father, these white flakes did challenge uh, pity of them. Was his face to be opposed against the jarring winds, to stand against the deep, dead, bolted thunder in the most terrible and nimble strokes of quick, gross lightning to watch? Poor Paradou. The definition at the bottom is says, watch, stand guard. Paradou is an exposed and uh, an ex- expedental sentry. So she knows he was really put into the, into the you know, bad weather and all that. She says, my enemy's dog, though he had bit me, should, should have, so, uh, have stood that night against my fire and was thou fain, poor father, to hovel thee with swine and rogues, forlorn and short and musty straw, alack, alack, tis wonder that thy life and wits at once had not concluded all. And he wakes, speak to him. And so, so she's looking at the, the doctor at that point. And, uh, uh, he goes, Madam, do you, it's fittest. That's all the time we have for today's program. Next time, we'll continue with Act 4, and we'll begin Act 5. So please write me any comments you may have to comments at kpcg.fm. You can also comment at my Twitter page, Shakespeare's Royal Education. So thanks for joining me, and next time, as we advance our royal education. You've been listening to Shakespeare's Royal Education on Trumpet Radio, 101.3 KPCG, streaming online at kpcg.fm and thetrumpet.com.